Uh, you can turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And as you're turning there, this is uh, the first letter, of course, by Paul to the church at Corinth. And by large, the design of this letter is to end certain sins, correct certain issues that are going on that pervaded the particular context of uh, the church at Corinth. And Paul leaves the, the gravest error to the last, and that is it, the denial of the very fabric of the gospel itself. In 1 Corinthians 15 here, we see a, uh, a wonderful summary of the gospel set forth, in essence, a definition of it, and that given in order to, um, in order to bring to an end the denial of the resurrection of the dead. So I'm going to read uh, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 1 to verse 22. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1, the word of the triune God. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise." For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Well, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your word to us. We thank you for this act of worship, the preaching of your word. We do pray that you would bless this time to the praise of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do ask, Lord God, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be exalted upon the praises of this gathered assembly. We pray that in this exercise, your saints would be edified, strengthened, and encouraged. And Lord God, that sinners would be saved. And we do just pray that all that is done this morning would be done unto your praise and glory. And we pray in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, 
in this passage, we have the gospel of our salvation set forth, the importance of it, the content of it, the certainty of it, and then therefore, blessedly, the great hope of it. Um, and we're going to look at this passage both, both this morning and this evening. Uh, this morning, we'll look simply from verses 1 to 4, and we want to observe two things, the importance of the gospel, firstly, and the content of the gospel, secondly. The occasion for the writing of this, just by way of introduction, the occasion for the writing of this portion of 1 Corinthians is given to us in verse 12. If we ask the question, why is the Apostle Paul writing 1 Corinthians 15? The answer comes in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, to use Paul's own language that he uses elsewhere, Paul is marveling in a sense that they have, that some have departed from the very fabric of gospel truth, which points to, which finds its foundation in the very resurrection of Christ himself. Because he says here, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And it is the very resurrection of Christ that is the hope of Christians. And so as Chrysostom wrote, Paul uses great earnestness, earnestness, not uh, for not of morals was his discourse henceforth, nor about one, one man's being a fornicator, another covetous, and another having his head covered, but about the very sum of all good things. So this is why Paul's explication of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important because that very gospel is the sum of all good things. So we want to look first off then at the importance of the gospel and a number of things under that head that we can notice here. The first is the importance of the gospel is seen in wholesome repetition. That means the goodness of repeating something. And notice what Paul writes here. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. And so obviously, when Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth, he's writing to them concerning something that they already knew about, that they had already heard about, that they had already received, and as we'll see in a few moments, that they've already believed and that they're resting upon if they hold fast to the end. And so wholesome repetition, the importance of the gospel is seen in the fact that the apostles, in this case the apostle Paul, very often repeat the glory of the gospel. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of the reasons is, is because we're very prone to forget. As humans, generally speaking, but even as Christians saved by the grace of God, we're prone to forget. We're prone to, to wander, prone to leave the God that we love, as the, as the hymnist wrote. And so wholesome repetition comes as a pattern of apostolic delivery because we are so prone to forget. In fact, Spurgeon wrote these words concerning this very passage. He whom we should make the abiding tenant of our memories is but a visitor therein. So speaking of Christ, he whom we should make the abiding tenant of our memories is but a visitor therein. The cross where one would think that memory would linger and unmindfulness would be an unknown intruder is desecrated by the feet of forgetfulness. Does not your conscience say that this is true? Do you not find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Some creature steals away your heart and you are unmindful of him upon whom your affection ought to be set. 
Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should fix your eyes steadily upon the cross. It is the incessant turmoil of the world, the constant attraction of earthly things, which takes away the soul from Christ. While memory too well preserves a poisonous weed, it suffers the rose of Sharon to wither. Let us charge ourselves to bind a heavenly forget-me-not about our hearts, for Jesus our beloved, and whatever else we let slip, let us hold fast to him. It's very, we are very prone to forget our Christ. And our, our, our brother brought up something about that this morning in, in prayer as well. Uh, our minds can wander when they should be focused, for example, upon the singing of the hymn. We forget the words that we read. They might just come out because we're used to singing that hymn or we're looking upon the page and just rehearsing the words. But the heart isn't there. The mind isn't there and raptured by the very Christ that we profess. And so the apostle comes and he has to write, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you already in the past because we are so prone to forget the Christ that we love. Secondly, though, it is also um, the importance of the gospel is seen in wholesome repetition. Why? Because the gospel is the very lifeblood of our Christianity. If we are to ask that question, what is the air that we breathe and what is the blood that pumps through our Christian veins, metaphorically speaking, it is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that because behind that, uh, behind that rests the very doctrine of our triune God. Behind that rests the very decree of God. Behind that rests the very purpose for creation and for providence. And behind that rests the, the, the very blessed person of Jesus Christ himself, very God and very man, yet one Christ. And so the importance of the gospel is seen in wholesome repetition. It's also seen in apostolic confirmation. So the importance of the gospel is seen in apostolic confirmation. The apostle Paul, with his own, um, uh, with his own, uh, the, with his authority as an apostle, comes and answers this verse twelve issue that some among them were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead, and he comes and he delivers the gospel as the antidote, as the answer, um, as the spike or as the hammer to dash to pieces. Um, uh, to dash to pieces that earthen vessel, and he comes and he delivers the gospel with apostolic authority. So the importance of the gospel is very simply seen there. The apostle Paul comes, yes, as one born out of due time, yes, as one who is the least of the, uh, the least of the apostles and isn't even worthy, he says, to be called an apostle, yet by the grace of God he comes, he is what he is by that grace, and he delivers the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, under the importance of the gospel, the importance of the gospel is seen in the transmission of truth, or we would want to say the pattern of the transmission of truth. There's something very conspicuous or rich in the language used here by received and delivered. In verse 1, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. And then later in verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. This is language, this language um, is not strange or is not only used here, is not alone used in chapter 15. But if you back up to chapter 11, we want to notice two spots here, two places where we see this similar language 
where we want to argue that or recognize that the importance of the gospel is seen in the pattern of the truth's transmission, the delivery of the truth from one to another, the retention and the holding on of that truth, and then the subsequent pattern of delivering and receiving that same truth. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then later on in verse 23 of that same chapter, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This doesn't just happen to be the language that the Paul used, that the Apostle Paul uses, empty of actual meaning and, um, and apostolic work behind it, but it is rich with what we should what we should glory in as Christians, and that is that across the last 2,000 years, we have benefited from the transmission of the truth. That God in his providential kindness has deemed it such that he has appointed men to carry forth the torch of the truth's transmission from age to age. And it's another thing, too, that, we, uh, that is uh, an application later on, but the importance of the church of Christ, the importance to, to be in church, because it is here where we receive the transmission of the truth. Christ exalted upon the uh, exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high by his spirit in his churches delivers forth the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in gospel glory. And we are to see uh, not church not as a weariness not as something loathsome that we have to drag our uh, our miserable human bodies to every sunday but we should go if not outwardly at least inwardly with a smile on our face and with cheer on our hearts that we can come into this place and hear of our christ hear of our triune god and hear of the gospel of uh, of undescribable glory and so the importance of the gospel is seen in the transmission of truth. This language of, I received from the Lord and I delivered it to you, that rests upon the fact that God, from the outset of creation, has been about the transmission of truth. Uh, chapter 7 in our Confession of Faith speaks with regards to the fact, in chapter 1, regards to the fact that the creature does owe obedience to God by virtue of his creation, but that the creature could never have uh, arrived at the reward of everlasting life except by some voluntary condescension on the part of God. And God voluntarily condescends to bring to us the truth of God and of his Christ. And so we should bless our God for the transmission of the truth and the importance of the gospel is seen in it. Basil of Caesarea wrote, We stand in the arena to fight for our common heritage for the treasure of the sound faith delivered from our fathers. Let us be a generation that carries on that torch of deliverance that God would raise up from amongst us those ministers of the gospel of his that would go forth and bring the truth to the nations. The importance of the gospel is also seen fourthly in the fact of it being the ground of salvation. Notice the language again, going back to verse one. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. 
if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the importance of the gospel is seen in the fact that it is the very ground of salvation, the very purpose of Christ's coming. What does Paul write elsewhere but that this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into this world sinners to save. The very gospel of Jesus Christ is the ground of our salvation. And the Apostle Paul wants to answer the issue of verse 12 with this language. You received this. You currently stand in this. So it's not just a past tense thing. It's not just you received this. So therefore don't believe in this, uh, you know, rejection of the resurrection of the dead, but not only that you received it, but that you now stand in that, that if you are a believer, if you are a true Christian, you received it at one time. And it is the case that you always stand in that truth. And I think this can bring us back to, uh, for a moment to the, the first reason that, uh, the first reason concerning the importance of the gospel and repetition We should never be so far removed from our reception of the truth that we don't blessedly rest with our Christian minds upon the fact that we currently stand in that same truth. We're never so far, we ought never to be so far removed from the day that grace came, that amazing grace came, that we somehow become cold and and detached Christians, not reflecting upon that amazing grace, not reflecting upon the Christ who died, to to bring us forth from deadness to life. It is something that we have received, the gospel is, and it's something that, uh, that we currently stand in, by which also you are saved. And, you know, the, uh, I'm sure you guys know already, but what does Paul mean? And we'll get to this more pointedly, but what does Paul mean by the gospel? He means the doing and the dying and the rising again of the son of God. And we'll elaborate on that when we get there. But Get back to this fact. The very importance of the gospel is built upon the fact that it is the ground of our salvation. So rejecting the resurrection of the dead is to reject the very gospel of our salvation. Fifthly and finally, under the importance of the gospel, the importance of the gospel is seen in its primacy of place in Christian proclamation. That means it is the first amongst those things that Christianity proclaims. It's primacy of place. It holds chief place in Christian proclamation. Notice verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. And then he goes on to explicate the gospel very concisely. Now this language of first of all doesn't here mean chronologically, or we would want to say that it doesn't mean that the Corinthians were the first who received the gospel. It can kind of carry that language. For I delivered to you, Corinthian church, first of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But remember, if we were to go back to the book of Acts, the Corinthians were not the first recipients of the gospel of gospel preaching by the apostle Paul. So what, what does it mean then? Could it mean that when the Apostle Paul came and preached at Corinth, that he preached the gospel first to them? Well, yeah, that would make more sense than the first understanding, because the first understanding doesn't make any. But this language actually carries with it more the meaning of, for I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received. 
That's why we say here that the importance of the gospel is seen in its primary of primary uh, primacy of place rather in Christian proclamation, because Paul here is saying, I delivered to you of first importance, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is first of all, or it is of first importance as Poole writes the principal article of the Christian faith. And it is the the principal article of the Christian faith, not only by virtue of its own merits, but also by virtue of what rests behind it. And that is the very doctrine of the triune God. The doctrine of God rests behind the gospel of God because, of course, it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has decreed, according to his free and immutable will, all things that take place with peculiar and special focus upon the very doing and dying and rising again of Jesus Christ. So not only does the doctrine of the triune God rest behind the the gospel of God, but the very decree of God. Creation and providence. If we ask the question, what are creation and providence for? They are for the manifestation of the glory of God through the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings that accrue to his elect by virtue of that saving work. So the the, the galaxies spinning in their orbits, the planets spinning in theirs, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans... All of history, all of providence exists solely and alone for the manifestation of the glory of God and pointedly with respect to the church and the saving of it by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about creation. We think about providence. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just one thing that happened to occur in in creation and by providence, but is the very crux and center of it. And so hopefully we see the importance of the gospel in just these these short handfuls of minutes. The very reason for the incarnation of the Son of God is for the gospel of the Son of God. So moving on then from the importance of the gospel to the content of the gospel, and that's what we'll take up in uh, from uh, 3b and verse 4. So the content of the gospel concerns the excellence of the person of Christ and the surpassing merit of his work. When we, when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the very thing, or those two things are the things that we ought to think about. The excellence of the person of Christ and the surpassing merit of of the work of Christ, the person and work of Christ. We can sum up the gospel in helpful phrases such as the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God, his life, his substitutionary life, his substitutionary death, and his resurrection in power and in glory. And we do well to explore all of those blessed works that the Lord Jesus Christ has undertaken in our stead. But first, we want to look under the content of the gospel at the grand subject of the glorious gospel, and that is simply Christ. We read here, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. You know, the pseudo-Christian or the pseudo-spiritual can talk about the death the burial and the resurrection of Christ. But it is, if it isn't the Christ of Holy Scripture, then it is no gospel at all. 
There, there are many Christs that are proclaimed by, by persons and teachers and, and false teachers out there that, is, that, that, that are not the Christs, if I track my own grammar properly, that are not the Christs of the Bible. And so a reflection upon the gospel of Jesus Christ presses us, hopefully blessedly as Christians, with warmth in our Christian hearts to explore very briefly, if only briefly, who this Christ is. And of course, we want to note that he is very an eternal God. In fact, that's one of the most important, that is sort of the, the first of things confessed when we approach the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is very and eternal God. And along with that, then, that he is equal with the Father and, of course, the Spirit. We, I think we do well to, and it helps us to uh, allay or to, to combat the errors that are out there if we can bring in creedal language into our minds you know, the history of confessions, the history of creeds were not delivered such by ivory tower theologians so that, you know, Christians could sound great when they rehearse uh, wrote text. But rather it was to protect the very Christian heart against the heresy that so surrounded them and that so surrounds us throughout time and throughout history. So when we consider our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it's good to consider what our confession of faith says, that in this divine and infinite being with respect to God, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence and the essence undivided. This helps us to battle against such, you would say, that the Son is somehow inferior to the Father. The Son is not inferior to the Father. He is very and eternal God, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father and equal with him who eternally begets him. And so if anyone is to come to you and speak in some way as the Son, according to his divinity, being inferior to the Father, uh, you can speak back to them the Bible, you can speak back to them the creed and say, get thee behind me, Satan. In fact, one of the, one of the, the uh, early church fathers, this is Cyril of Alexandria, this is the language that he used with respect to Arius and those rejecting the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that they are spewing forth the venom of the blood-defiled dragon. We need to take the seriousness of the rejection of this doctrine, well, we need to take this doctrine very serious. It is a grave thing to reject the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a vile thing to reject the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is critical to our Christian confession and vital to our salvation. The words of Jesus Christ himself, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Taking to himself that language of Exodus 3.14, taking to himself that language of Exodus 3.14, reiterated, reiterated by Isaiah in Isaiah 10. He is, I am. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus Christ is very and eternal God. He is very man. Similarly, a truth critical to our Christian confession and vital to our salvation. If we do not confess that he is very man, then we are not Christians. In fact, Antichrist, according to the Bible, is anyone who does not believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
That's the Apostle John, a, a, a glorious apostle of the doctrine of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. When we say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, we're not simply saying that he took to himself a human body. That was a heresy of old. He did not just take to himself, as one of the fathers would say, the portraiture of humanity, but rather he took to himself body and reasonable soul. He assumed our nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, and yet without sin. He is very God, and he is very man. If he is not very man, then man is not saved. Man needs a savior, doesn't he? Doesn't she? We need a savior who assumes not only body, but also a reasonable soul because we fell in body and soul. We violated the law of God with body and soul. The, the, old, the old fathers would say um, something like the, the unassumed is the unhealed. In other words, if Christ does not assume the whole us without sin, then he does not redeem the whole us against those who would deny that Christ assumed to himself a reasonable soul or that he assumed to himself a body. Uh, some in the ancient church and even some in our own day, tragically, still reject those, those two things or one of those two things. It's a wonderful scene in, in Luke 24 on this particular point. Um, in Luke 24, remember what's going on there. The Lord Jesus Christ appears to his disciples. He appears first to the two on the road to uh, Emmaus, and then he appears to the rest. Um, and they initially don't believe that it is the Christ. And so he says, look at me and see that it is I. So he engages in this first sort of round of round of proof or round of evidence. Look at me and see it is I look at the print of the nails in my hands, my side, uh, my feet. Um, and then still for joy, they don't believe him. They're just so excited now they're getting there, but they're not quite there yet. And so he says, handle me and see. Uh, the, this next proof that it really is Christ, that he really did assume humanity. Handle me and see. Not only look at the print of the nails, but touch the print of the nails. Touch me and see that it is I. And yet they still had not arrived at it. So he, what does he do? He eats broiled fish and honeycomb to show them that a specter doesn't eat, can't eat broiled fish and, and honeycomb. The early church fathers would, would say things like, uh, Luke, is, Luke is helping future generations of, uh, of apologists to argue against those who would deny the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if that was Luke's primary point, but God in his providence inscripturates that evidentiary process by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to show that he really did assume our humanity. So what does that mean? That those who believe from the mass of humanity have everlasting life because Christ redeems guilty sinners. So he is very God and he is very man. And then simply he is yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Two whole perfect and distinct natures inseparably joined together in one person. That is the grand subject of the glorious gospel Christ. And we ought to consider before we just move on here to the second point under the content of the gospel, what a condescension it was. What a condescension it is for Christ to have assumed our humanity for our redemption. 
Talk about something, as Spurgeon said earlier, that we ought to call to mind regularly. We ought to fight against the intrusions of other thoughts. We, we, we obviously need to think about other things or we'd be useless in this lower world. But I think what Spurgeon is saying when we need to fight against, when we need to fight against uh, other thoughts is that we are not to think about everything else to the sacrifice of the one who we ought to put the most thought into. We have jobs, we have relationships, we have husbands, we have wives, we have children, we have fathers, mothers, etc. So we need to think about other things. But far be it from the Christian to forget his Christ. We are to call to mind regularly and often the glorious one, very God of very God, who came down to our lower shame by the assumption of our humanity to redeem us. What an amazing thing. It was John, uh, I think it was J.C. Ryle that, that marveled. It would have been a, a, an incredible act of condescension for the Son of God to come down to Jerusalem and live in a mansion among, uh, among the, the, you know, the dwellers, the, the denizens of Jerusalem. That would have been an act of condescension because he still would have condescended to our lower shame, assuming humanity. But you see, it's the height of condescension. I know that doesn't make sense. I'm going to say it anyway. But the height, it is the, the very height of condescension for him to take upon our humanity and to be found as one that, unlike the foxes who have their holes and the birds who have their nests, he has nowhere to lay his head, that he's rejected by his people, that he's spit upon, beaten, and crucified. The glorious condescension of the Son of God for our redemption and recovery ought to be something that we call to mind as often as it ought to be called to mind. Moving on then from the grand subject of the glorious gospel, Christ. Secondly, the blessed obedience and work of the Son of God incarnate. Notice then, back to verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. If we ask ourselves, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, If we ask ourselves, where in the Bible do we have a definition of? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is right here that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it is the case that in Christianity and sort of the, the, the larger, you know, the larger scope of Christendom, if you'll allow, that the definition of the gospel has become somewhat convoluted or blurred or confused you know, it's sometimes people will say things like, and it's a it's an old saying, uh, you, you know, certainly ripped out of context, if not originally a bad saying to begin with. Um, but, uh, you know, preach the gospel and when possible, use words. Um, that's not a good saying at all. You can only preach the gospel with words. Now, I get the sentiment behind it. We are to shine as lights in a crooked, perverse generation holding forth the word of truth. We're to shine, we're to be, uh, you know, shine as lights. We're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But that's different than what the gospel itself is. The gospel can only be preached by words. And I think sometimes the gospel itself might get confused with the summons that comes upon the heels of giving the gospel. The statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, brings with it 
a measure of good news, but it isn't itself the good news. That is the summons given to those who have just been preached the good news. That good news again, that gospel again, is the doing and the dying and the rising again of the Son of God. What does that do then? It removes us from the equation of the gospel. It is for us that the gospel is. The Son of God came into this lower shame to redeem us, but the gospel itself has everything to do with Christ and Christ alone. He lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose again the third day. He ascended into heaven uh, upon the heels of his perfect work. And all those in him will have everlasting life, of course. But the gospel concerns the doing and the dying and the rising again of Christ. Notice this language of he died. You know, that. Uh, how many sermons could be preached on just those three words that Christ died? <laughs> I think there's a, there's a lot that could be said there. We need to observe in the very least, though, as we move along, that that death was a cross-death obedience. It wasn't just that his life passed. It wasn't just to say that he died. In fact, the next clause qualifies it for our sins. That death upon Calvary's cross was one of a cross-death obedience. His life leading up to that was one of obedience, active obedience unto the whole law in the stead of all those who believe. And then this death is that passive obedience, the passive obedience of his death, which is along with that act of obedience imputed to us for our whole and soul righteousness. That death that he died upon Calvary's cross was an act of obedience. And we, we are, as Christians, to marvel at that. You know what marveling means? Hopefully you know what marveling means. It, it means that our minds are to be captured intimately and seriously with solemnity and joy by this great act of the condescended Son of God. We're to marvel in the fact that the creator of worlds took upon himself our humanity to redeem us. The, uh, the early church would have these, these long periods of marveling in their preaching and even in their writing where they would stop to explore the immensity of Christ's condescension. They would say things like the one who fixed the stars in place is fixed in place upon a tree. The judge of all the earth is judged in the sense that our sins are imputed to him upon that Roman cross. The one who set the, the galaxies rolling in the universe is captured upon a Roman implement of execution for our redemption. We are as Christians as often as we're able to and certainly in church when we're gathered on the Lord's Day morning and evening to marvel, to have our minds captured that the creator of the universe was made fast, was made quick upon Calvary's cross for the redemption of his people. Let us never stop marveling in the blessed death upon Calvary's cross. And not only do we see a cross death obedience, but we are to remark after the willingness of our Savior to go to that cross. That's something that we also ought to marvel in. Christ didn't shrink back from his mission. Yes, in the garden upon his knees, he cried out, If it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. But remember, he was resolved, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He set his eyes as a flint to Jerusalem. It was his meat to do the will of the Father who sent him. And with a resolute willingness, the Savior goes to the cross. Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, 
Adam received the sentence, Cursed is the ground in thy labors, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. For this cause Jesus assumes the thorns, that he may cancel the sentence. Our Savior assumed the thorns. He went willingly to the cross that he might cancel the sentence incurred by the first Adam. The blessed death upon Calvary's cross. He died, and we'll look at for our sins in a moment. But before we move there, we want to notice, secondly, under the obedience and work of the Son of God, that he was buried. We ought not to skip by the language, he was buried, and I think there are some, there are some solid reasons why we ought not to. Notice after that first clause, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried. So what is the significance of this burial? We ought not to skip past it. The Bible doesn't. In fact, there's a lot of time in the narratives that are spent there. Here in this creedal delivery by the Apostle Paul, it's captured there only briefly, but that doesn't steal away from the meaning of it. And in the creeds throughout history, that is a very important clause that's included. Death, burial, resurrection. So what can we gain by a consideration or an investigation into the burial of Jesus Christ? Well, first... It's a testification to the reality of his death, and so the bearing of the curse. That is, it speaks to the veracity of, the certain truthfulness of, the fact that he did die upon the cross. You see, there have been some, and there are some still today, that say that he did not really die, but rather feigned death, faked death upon the cross. And that he was buried, but buried alive, and once he regained strength, he exited the tomb somehow. Um, But the burial, as it's reiterated in Scripture, as it's spoken of in Scripture, speaks to the certainty that Christ died, that he really did die, and so then that he really did bear the curse incurred by the first Adam that rests upon all those in Adam who are outside of Christ. So it's a It speaks to the very truthfulness the burial does. It speaks to the truthfulness of the reality of the very death of Christ. And again, not only that he died, but that on that tree he bore our curse in our stead. Secondly, it is the fulfillment of prophecy, including the Savior's own prophecy. The burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is promised uh, in the Old Testament. One simple place is in Isaiah 53. But the Lord Jesus Christ also spoke and prophesied concerning his own burial, that he would be buried. Remember when he was dealing with the unbelieving Jews, they were seeking after a sign. The Lord Jesus Christ says, the only sign that I will give you is the one of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And so it was the fulfillment of prophecy and that the Savior's own prophecy as well. Thirdly, it's a declaration of the reversal of the curse of Adam. Or we could say a declaration of the reversal of the Edenic episode. Henry speaks these words, that is Matthew Henry. He writes, In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power, and now in a garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over. In a garden Christ began his passion, and from a garden he would rise and begin his exaltation. 
As well, he would write, come and see a burial that conquered the grave and buried it. A burial that beautified the grave and softened it for all believers. Don't you like that language? The fear of death, the victory certainly of death, is taken away by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christ softened the grave for believers. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to see, we can't see, we shouldn't see in death any victory. Why? Because as the text will later say, Christ brings, uh, brings death to its victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Before that, death is swallowed up in victory. And so the burial speaks to the reversal of the curse. That from the ground the curse was wrought, in the ground the curse is reversed. Come and see a burial that conquered the grave and buried it, a burial that beautified the grave and softened it for all believers. And lastly, under the fact of the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ, it sets the stage for his resurrection from the dead. It sets the glorious stage for this resurrection that will follow. Henry again, thus, without pomp or solemnity, is the body of Jesus laid in the cold and silent grave. Here lies our surety under arrest for our debts, so that if he be released, his discharge will be ours. Here is the son of righteousness set for a while to rise again in greater glory and set no more. Here lies a seeming captive to death, but a real conqueror over death. For here lies death itself slain, and the grave conquered. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. So Christ really died. He was really buried. And all of those things come with the, that theological weight of glorious redemption. And then, of course, it sets the stage for his resurrection from the dead, which is thirdly the blessed, uh, a point of that blessed work and obedience of the Son of God. Notice the language of verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. What a blessed thing. And you see, hopefully as the Apostle Paul got to that point, those who were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead, at least hopefully a good majority of them, would be cut to the heart when they would draw the connection between the fact that if we are denying the very the resurrection of the dead then we are denying the very resurrection of the son of god himself incarnate and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures this resurrection comes with the great theological weight and soteriological weight that is the saving weight the salvific weight firstly it vindicates uh, Christ having completed the work he came to do. That means that Christ's work is, is punctuated as uh, perfect in its satisfaction by the resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then his work would have been ineffectual. But his work was perfectly effectual. That is, he was perfect in his doing and in his dying, and his rising again punctuates the perfection of that work. He really did come into this lower world sinners to save. He saved those sinners and his rising again is that glorious and victorious 
punctuating of the fact that his work was perfection. He satisfied divine justice. He satisfied the terms of the covenant of redemption, which was for him a covenant of works to reverse the curse of Adam. And he rises victoriously and gives testament to the fact that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. Of course, there would be subsequent punctuation or a... um, um, Uh, just a a fuller evidence of the perfection of his work when he arises and he he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the reward proper when he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That that is when we, we see properly the reward or the award given to Christ upon the heels of the perfection of his mediatorial work. But this powerful resurrection vindicates his work. Secondly, it's, and bear with me with this language, it's taken a little bit from John Gill, but it's the testification of the veracity of our justification and that sin was atoned for. You'll, you'll remember the language in the, in the book of Romans, Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. That, that raised for our justification speaks to the fact that the certain truthfulness that we have that non-condemnation declaration by the Father, that declaration positively that you are justified or righteous, we have that testified to by virtue of Christ's resurrection. So when we think about, when we look with eyes of faith upon a risen Christ, we're to think about, for a moment, our sins. We're to reflect for a moment on the fact that we violated the law of God, but then we're to fly quickly to the fact that there was one who perfectly obeyed God in our stead, and that one who died for uh, our guilt and for our wrath upon the cross. And in that, we have justification. His act of obedience unto the whole law and his passive obedience in his death for our whole and soul righteousness. He really did justify sinners, and he is the one who bore the atonement for sinners. And then thirdly, under the resurrection, it punctuated the victory over death, the grave, and the devil. What a wonderful thing. Sin rushes into this world by the devil. It's conquered by the Son of God incarnate. Adam falls. Adam bears the curse. Adam passes it on, if you will, to all of his progeny. And it's from that vantage point of original sin that all actual sins do flow from us. We deserve guilt. We deserve wrath. We deserve the curse of God, not only in this life, but in also that which is to come. Yet this one comes and by his life, death, punctuated at his resurrection, we have victory over death, the grave and the devil. What a blessed thing. And as we would reflect upon our uh, perhaps relatives, our our loved ones who died in the Lord, our our family and our friends who died in the Lord, we, we don't have loss of losses. We have hope of hopes that they are looking upon the very face of Christ because he conquered death. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin and Satan himself. And in him, we have like victory. Thirdly, under the content, and lastly, under the content of the gospel, the redemptive blessings that accrue to us by virtue of the perfect work of Christ. And backing up to 3b, that Christ died for our sins, 
according to the scriptures. You see, it just wasn't simply a historical event, though it was a historical event. The life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ really did happen. The narrative accounts of the Gospels are just that, true narrative accounts of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and exaltation of the Son of God incarnate. They are not fable. We do not follow after cunningly uh, devised fables, but rather we follow after the very certainty of the Word of God in declaring for us the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, while it was a certain historical work, it also comes with it that uh, also coming with it is that blessed saving work as well. The Bible not only provides the narrative, but the theological commentary on what the death was for. And here we read that Christ died for our sins. His death, burial, and resurrection were not simply historical, but soteriological, that is salvific. So as we reflect upon the, the, the doing and the dying and the rising again of Christ, we are to bring it back to uh, first-person realities that he's my Savior, that he died for my sins. If you're a believer, you can say that Christ lived for me, he died for me, he rose again for me, and he ever lives in intercession for me. What a blessed thing. It was for our sins. And as we think about, as we can cast our minds back upon the fact that we have sinned against a holy God, believers who are here this morning, uh, Spurgeon, the language that he uses is we, we, ought to, we ought to peruse the diary of our memories for there the witnesses of our guilt have faithfully recorded their names. Yet we quickly fly to the Son of God who came into this lower world, sinners to save, because in him we have redemption, and we ought not to then reflect upon guilt, reflect upon wrath, because Christ took those from us. In him we have salvation and perfect salvation. Not a salvation of maybe, not a salvation, salvation of perhaps, but certain salvation by virtue of and because of his blessed and perfect work. He died for our sins. And we have lots of them. Even before victorious and amazing grace came to us, uh, after victorious and amazing grace came to us, we still break the law of God. And yet, what are we to do? We are to immediately fly to the Lord, our righteousness, the advocate we have with the Father, because he is for us our forgiveness of sins. What a blessed Savior we have. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and all this for the perfection of his work that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. And if you're a Christian this morning, you are a son or a daughter of glory on your way to heaven by virtue of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So very quickly in closing, we ought to note three quick things here. First, the importance of the church of Christ. We noted this morning that part of what we see here is the transmission of truth. In the church, we are the, the, the blessed and undeserved beneficiaries of the deliverance or the transmission of truth. You know, the very act of a, of a fallible preacher coming up here and, and mounting a pulpit, yet preaching hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the commission of God, brings truth to those uh, who are gathered together before him. And this is something that goes on throughout the world in faithful churches, and it's something that we ought to pray would go on, of course, until Christ comes again. 
As we pray for pastors, as we pray for preachers, as we pray for missionaries who go out and preach the truth, we ought to pray for that reality, the transmission of truth, and that punctuates the importance of the church of Jesus Christ. You're in a good place. You know, it might be hot in the middle of September here. It is kind of, it is for me. So I'm moving around in a suit and stuff with tied up to the neck. Um, it's a hot day. You know, you're looking forward to, to lunch and, and whatever else, but you're in the right place because you get to hear of Christ. Insofar as the preacher declares accurately the things from God's word, you're, you're hearing about our Savior. You're hearing about the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's important to be here, and it's good that you are. We ought to secondly reflect often upon the person and work of Christ, because that is the very lifeblood of our Christianity. The excellence of the person of Christ and the surpassing merit of his work. That is the air that we breathe. That is the blood that flows through our metaphorical Christian veins, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Reflect often upon the fact that the one who fixed the stars in place was fixed in place upon a tree. That the maker of all condescended to assume our humanity that we might have perfect redemption. And lastly, sinner, uh, unbeliever that is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we'll notice tonight, there. There are some things that Paul speaks to here concerning the vanity of holding a particular position. And, of course, that position, he he says, is not Christianity because of the but now Christ in verse 20. But it is the case that those outside of Christ, as we'll see tonight, those opposed to Christianity have emptiness. That unbelief is vanity and futile. That unbelief brings divine justice, that you will perish in your unbelief, and that outside of Christ, people are of all men the most miserable, because they are not found in the one who came into our lower shame to save. They are not found in the one who is very creator, yet man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be the blessed and undeserved beneficiary of his life, death, and resurrection, and you will, with all the saints, enter into his glory, singing to him everlastingly. What a blessed thing it is to be found, not dead in our sins, but alive in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We do pray, Lord God, that you would help us to reflect often upon him as we come into church, that we would have our minds focused upon your truth. Lord God, this morning, that you would, by your amazing and victorious grace, edify your saints, that you would save sinners. And Lord God, because it is possible only with you that each and every tongue would leave this place singing the praises of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.